It was in this retreat that he composed his interesting narrative of the leading events of Argyle's invasion. Leaving Kilwinning, he found an opportunity of safely crossing over to Ireland, first reaching Dublin, whence he embarked for Bordeaux, a large city in France. Footnote, Crawford's Lives and Characters, etc. End footnote. Having remained some months in France, he traveled next to Geneva on foot. Footnote, that he was at Bordeaux in France and Geneva when escaping from Scotland at this time is evident from his letters printed at the end of Lady Murray's memoirs of her parents. His first letter from Bordeaux was written November 15, 1685. There is also a letter dated January 13, 1686, another dated two days and another four days after, all which appear to have been written from that city. There are also two letters dated Geneva, the one on May 17th and the other on June 12th, 1686. His letter from Bordeaux of January 13th shows that he gave himself out there as a surgeon. He signs that letter as Peter Wallace and it was as Dr. Wallace that, that Captain Bird, who traveled with him on foot a part of the way from France to Holland, knew him. End footnote. And after remaining there for some time, went on foot to Rotterdam and ultimately took up his residence at Utrecht. In these peregrinations, he assumed the character of a surgeon, and being able to bleed, he always carried lancets on his person. Even after taking up his residence in Holland, though living under the immediate protection of the Prince of Orange and honored with the personal friendship of that prince, who, looking on him as a confessor for the Protestant religion and the liberties of his country, treated him with a very particular respect, he judged it expedient to continue to keep up his assumed character as a medical gentleman. After his arrival in that country, he sent to his lady his narrative of Argyle's expedition, formerly referred to, which is written in the form of a letter to her in which, though it was written in Scotland, he had not found while there a convenient opportunity of sending to her. This narrative he begins as follows, quote, My dear heart, footnote, this paper was addressed to his wife from Holland, note in Rose's observations in Fox's history. There is a second copy of this narrative apparently in the handwriting of Alexander, Earl of Marchmont, which is headed as follows, letter to D. Grizel Carr from her husband, Sir Patrick Hume, in Anno 1685, written from Kilwinning, where he lurked at the time by the kind favor of Lady Montgomery, sister to the Earl of Eglinton and spouse of Dunbar, younger of Baldoon, taken from a copy written of his own hand which is yet amongst his papers. Note of the editor of the Marchmont Papers. End footnote. Since I can have small hope of seeing you any more or enjoying the pleasure of conversing with you, a thing wherein, as now, I more than ever dis discern my happiness on this earth did much consist, not knowing how long God will preserve me from the hands of mine enemies who hunt earnestly after my life, have set a rate upon my head and done otherwise what they can to cut off from me all ways of escaping their fury, I found myself obliged on many accounts, public and my own, to spend some time in giving to the nation and my friends and my family some account of the matters I have of late had in hand and of myself that the affair chiefly, many worthy persons therein concerned, and I, 
may not by ignorant or false representations be prejudged or discredited, and there is none to whom I can address it so duly as to you or so safely. For though this mock parliament have made it, by their forefaulting me very dangerous for others, yet you may with somewhat more safety receive a letter from me. Also none will take so much of dispersing the contents as I think you will. Besides that there is none I can be more obliged to satisfy than you by it. And for these purposes I recommend it to your care and discretion. End quote. Footnote. The Marchmont Papers, Volume 3, Page 2. End footnote. Sir Patrick's estate having been forfeited to the crown, Grizel, after he had left the country, went to London by sea with her mother, whose object in undertaking that journey was to endeavor to obtain from government an allowance out of her husband's estate for herself and her ten children. They waited long in London and were assisted in their endeavors by many good friends from whom they met with much kindness and civility as Lord William Russell's family, Lord Wharton's, and others, but all she could obtain was, according to Lady Murray, only about 150 pounds per annum. Footnote. Sir Patrick's estate was afterward, by the King's letter, dated 1686, gifted to Kenneth, Earl of Seaforth, under several reservations mentioned, one of which was that he be bound to pay the young Lady Polwarth's jointure, conformed to her contract of marriage with the said Sir Patrick Hume, and the additional jointure thereafter granted unto her, both extending to 3,000 merks Scots money, that is 166 pounds, 13 shillings, 4 pence sterling. The Marchmont Papers, Volume 3, page 67. End footnote. This matter being settled, they returned to Scotland to prepare for going over to Holland to Sir, to Sir Patrick who sent for them and they all went over together with the exception of Grizel's sister Julian whose ill health unfitted her for such a journey. Grizel afterwards returned, to, returned from Holland by herself to bring over Julian when her health was in some measure recruited to join the rest of the family. She was at the same time entrusted with the management of some of her father's business and got instructions to collect as much of the debts due to him as possible. All this she performed with her usual discretion and success, though not without encountering adventures that would have completely overwhelmed the resources of most young ladies of her age and rank in our day. Her sister Julian was still so very weak as to require the attendance of a nurse during the whole of the voyage, which happened to be very tedious, and in which they encountered a severe storm, the terrors of which were aggravated by the brutality of the captain of the vessel. Grizel had bargained for the, cap for the cabin bed, and was very well provided in provisions and other necessary things. Three or four other ladies had also agreed with the captain for the same bed and a dispute arose between these ladies in the cabin as to who should have the bed, in which, however, Grizel took no part, and the gentleman present bade her let the disputant settle the matter between them, for, said he, you will see how it will end. Two of the ladies went into the cabin bed, and the rest found a bed as best they could, while Grizel and her sister lay upon the floor with a bag of books, which she was carrying to her father, for their pillow. They had not lain long when the captain of the vessel coming down to the cabin voraciously devoured their whole provisions. He then said to the two ladies in the cabin bed, Turn out, turn out, 
and stripping before them lay down in the bed himself. But a terrible storm arising which required his attendance and labor on deck to save the ship, he had soon to rise and they saw no more of them till they landed at the Brill. From the Brill they set out the same night on foot for Rotterdam in company with a gentleman who had come over at the same time to take refuge in Holland from the persecution which was raging in Scotland and who was of great service to them. The night was cold, wet, and disagreeable, and the roads were very bad. Julian, in consequence of her previous ill health and being only a girl, was not well able to travel, and soon lost her shoes in the mud, upon which Grizel carried her on her back the rest of the way, the gentlemen kindly carrying their small bag luggage. On arriving at Rotterdam, they found their elder brother Patrick and their father waiting for them to convey them to Utrecht where the family resided and no sooner did she reach home than in the midst of her beloved parents sisters and brothers she forgot all her hardships and felt the utmost contentment and happiness they lived three and a half years in Holland and during that time Grizel made a second voyage to Scotland about her father's worldly affairs her father to escape detection did not stir abroad and as he has been previously said, still continued to assume the character of a, of a surgeon passing under the name of Dr. Wallace, though it was well known by the Scottish exiles and their friends who he was. Finding their greatest comfort at home, and their house being a place of constant resort to the Presbyterian refugees, of whom at that time there was a great number in Holland, they were particularly desirous of having a good house, and they rented one at nearly a fourth part of their whole annual income. For that from the smallest of their income, they could not afford to keep a servant, having only besides themselves a little girl to wash the dishes, so that the duties of the kitchen and indeed the management of the whole household establishment devolved on Grizel for which from her active and industrious habits she was well qualified and by which she proved a great blessing to her parents, brothers, and sisters. During the whole time of their residence in Holland, a week did not pass in which she did not sit up two nights engaged in some necessary household occupation. Quote, she went to market, went to the mill to have their corn ground, which it seems is the way with good managers there dressed the linen, cleaned the house, made ready the dinner, mended the children's stockings and other clothes, made what she could for them, and, in short, did everything, End quote. Her sister Christian, who was a year or two younger, had no turn for business, but had good talents for music and was full of vivacity and humor. Out of their small income, her parents bought, at a trifling price, a harpsichord which turned out to be an excellent instrument. And in the musical performances of Christian, who both played and sung well, her father and mother and the rest of the family, who were fond of music, found an agreeable relaxation in their vacant hours. Grizel had the same talents for music as her sister, and was equally fond of it, but the management of the household affairs devolving upon her, she had less leisure, leisure for indulging in that amusement. The performance of these domestic offices was to her, however, a labor of love, and so far was she from envying or upbraiding her sister who was exempted from the toil and drudgery to which she had to submit that many jokes used to pass between them about their different occupations nor had she any good ground for wishing to exchange occupations with her sister quote it is more blessed to minister than to be ministered unto said the most perfect character that ever appeared in human form 
Could any young person of ever such a listless and idle disposition not entirely debased by selfishness read of the different occupations of Lady Grizel Bailey and this sister of hers, nearly of her own age, whose time was mostly spent in reading or playing on a musical instrument, and wish for one moment to have been the last mentioned lady rather than the other? End quote. Footnote. Joanna Bailey's Metrical Legends of Exalted Characters. Preface, page 32. End footnote. Every morning before six o'clock, Grizel lighted her father's fire in his study after which she awoke him, for he was always a good sleeper, a blessing among others which she inherited from him. She then prepared for him warm small beer with a spoonful of bitters in it, a beverage which he continued to take every morning as soon as he got up during the whole of his life. She next got the children dressed and brought them all into his room, where he taught them the different branches of education, the Latin, French, or Dutch languages, geography, writing, reading, or English, according to their ages. And his lady taught them such departments of learning and such accomplishments as belonged to the province of the female teacher. In this useful and interesting way were Sir Patrick Hume and his lady employed during the whole period of their residence in Holland, their outward circumstances being such that they could not afford to put their children to school. Grizel, when she had some spare time, took a lesson with the rest in French and Dutch, and also amused herself with music. I have now, says her daughter, Lady Murray, a book of songs of her writing when there. Many of them are interrupted, half-writ, some broke off in the middle of a sentence. Whether this collection, which is probably now lost, consisted of songs altogether of her own composition or not, it is not said. But a song of her composition, which affords a favorable specimen of her talents in this species of writing, has been long in print. That is, Were now my heart licht I wad dee, and it may gratify the reader to see a copy of it here. Quote, there was Ansa May, and she lewd na men. She bigged her bonny bower down in yon glen. But now she cries duel, and a well a day. Come down the green gate, and come here away. But now she cries duel, and a well a day. Come down the green gate, and come here away. When bonny young Johnny came o'er the sea, He said he saw nothing say lovely as me. He hath me baith rings and money bra things, And were na my heart licht I wad thee. He heft me baith rings and money bra things, and were na my heart licht I wad thee. He had a wee titty that lewd na me, because I was twice as bonny as she. She raised such a pother twixt him and his mother that were na my heart licht I wad thee. She raised such a pother twixt him and his mother that were na my heart licht I wad thee. The day it was set and the bridal to be, the wife took a dwam and lay down to dee. She maimed and she grained out dollar and pain till he vowed he never wad see me again. She maimed and she grained out dollar and pain till he vowed he never wad see me again. His kin was for ain a higher degree, said, What had he to do the like of me? Albeit I was bonny, I was nay for Johnny, and were na my heart licht I wad thee. Albeit I was bonny, I was nay for Johnny, and were na my heart leaked, I wad thee. 
They said I had neither cow nor calf, nor dribbles a drink winds throw the draft, nor pickles a meal winds throw the milly, and were not my heart licht I wad thee, nor pickles a meal winds throw the milly, and were not my heart licht I wad thee. His titty she was baith wily and slee, she spied me as I came o'er the lee, and then she ran in and made out, made a loud din, believe your ain een and ye trown on me. And then she ran in and made a loud din, believe your ain een and ye trown on me. His bonnet stood I full round on his brow, his old ain looked as weel as sums new. But now he lets to where on ye gate it will hing, and cast himself dowie upon the corn bing. But now he lets to where on ye gate it will hing, he cast himself dowie upon the corn bing. And now he gazed dondering about, about the dikes, and all he do, thou do, is to hunt the tikes. The live lang necht he ne'er steeks his ee, and were now my heart leeched I wad thee. The live lang nicht he ne'er steeks his ee, and were now my heart licht I wad thee. Were I young for thee as I hae been, we should hae been gallopin' down on yon green, and linkin' it blithe on the lily white lee, and while gin I were but young for thee, and linkin' it blithe on the lily white lee, and while gin I were but young for thee. End quote. Footnote Ritson's Scottish Songs, Volume 1, page 128, and Chambers' Scottish Songs, Volume 2, page 321. End footnote. This, as has been justly said by a writer in the Scots magazine, is very good, at once simple, lively, and tender. Footnote. Scots magazine, new series for 1818, pages 35 and 36. End footnote. The same writer expresses a hope that the book of songs in Grizel's handwriting to which Lady Murray refers as being in her possession may yet be recovered and that it might afford further specimens of her poetical talents, or if not altogether of her own composition, might furnish some valuable additions to the lyric treasures by which Scotland has been so peculiarly distinguished. He then adds, quote, We are unable to subjoin one unpublished fragment of this description, supposed to be Lady Grizel's composition from circumstantial evidence. It was lately discovered in her handwriting among a parcel of old letters, and enclosed in one of them written about the time of her father's forfeiture to her brother Patrick, then serving with Mr. Bailey in the Prince of Orange's guards. The first two of the stanzas are copied from this manuscript. The others, in brackets, are subjoined as an imperfect attempt to complete the song in a similar style, but with a more direct reference to the situation of Lady Grizel and the family of Polwarth at that disastrous period. End quote. Quote, Oh, the ewe-beauting's bonny bathe evening and morn, when our blithe shepherds play on their bog-reed and horn. While we're milking, they're lilting bathe pleasant and clear, but my heart's like to break when I think of my dear. Oh, the shepherds take pleasure to blow on the horn, to raise up their flocks of sheep soon in the morn. On the bonny green banks they feed pleasant and free, but alas, my dear heart, all my sighings for thee. How blithe with my sandy out o'er the brown fells I hae followed the flocks through the fresh heather bells. But now I sit greeting among the lang broom, 
in the dowy green kloofs where the burnie glides down. Away to the traitors and black be their fall, while banished my kind-hearted shepherd awa, while banished my laddie ayont the wide sea, that I was say lil to his country and me. But the cruel oppressors shall tremble for fear when the true blue and orange in triumph appear, and the star of the east leads them o'er the dark sea with freedom to Scotland and Sandy to me. End quote. Footnote. Scott's Magazine, New Series for 1818, pages 35 and 36. End footnote. From these lively set specimens of Grisel's lyric compositions, as well from the whole of the preceding narrative, it was evident that, in addition to her other good qualities, she was characterized by a buoyant animation of spirit, combined with a guilelessness of soul, which gave a great charm to her character and made her universally loved, beloved. In her history, and indeed in that of all her family, whose good humor and harmless pleasantry made their society so agreeable and so greatly courted, we perceive how erroneously presbytery and the covenant have often been represented as deadly enemies to innocent hilarity, and our Presbyterian ancestors as the personification of austerity and moroseness. To her eldest brother Patrick, who was nearest her own age and who was brought up with her, Grisel was more strongly attached than to her other brothers or sisters. He and George Bailey, the son of Robert Bailey the Martyr, her future husband, who was deprived of his father's estate which had been forfeited, and who was then in Holland, having been also obliged to take refuge in exile, served for some time as, as privates in the Prince of Orange's guards, till more honorable and lucrative situations were provided for them in the army, which was done before the revolution. Grisel, who was always very neat in her own dress, felt an honest pride in seeing her brother neat and clean in his and it being the fashion in those days to wear little point cravats and cuffs, she sat up many a night to have them and his linens in as good order for him as, in, as any in the place. His dress was indeed one of the heaviest items in their expenses. Narrow and precarious as was the income of Sir Patrick and his family, they were distinguished for their kind-hearted hospitality. His house, as has been said before, was much frequented by such of his countrymen as, like himself, had taken refuge from persecution in Holland, and seldom did the family sit down to dinner without having three, four, or five of these refugees with them to partake of their humble repast. But Providence so remarkably blessed them in their basket and in their store that they wanted for nothing which they really needed, and virtue being associated with adversity they felt contentment and happiness, a state of mind which was much promoted by their contrasting the comfortable retreat they had found on a foreign shore with the suffering condition of many of their Presbyterian friends at home. Many a hundred times, says Lady Murray, speaking of her mother, I have heard her say she could never look back upon their manner of living there without thinking it a miracle. They had no want but plenty of everything they desired and much contentment, and she always declared it to be the most pleasant part of her life, though they were not without their little distresses, but to them they were rather jokes than grievances. Sir Patrick, being a scholar, the professors and learned men of Utrecht were often visitants at his house, and the best entertainment he could give them was a glass of alabaster beer which was a kind of ale better than the common. 
In exile, he continued to watch over the state of affairs in Scotland and discovered in William, Prince of Orange, of whose talents and character he entertained the highest admiration, the future deliverer of his country. He had penetration enough to see that the object aimed at in James VII's schemes of toleration for dissenters was under the disguise of benefiting them to afford relief to papists and ultimately to pave the way for the establishment of popery. Accordingly, in June 1668, he addressed from Utrecht a well-written and powerfully reasoned letter to his friend Sir William Denholm, who had been in Argyll's expedition to be communicated to the Presbyterian ministers of Scotland to put them on their guard against an insidious plan which was in agitation to induce them to petition in favor of King James's deceptive measure for a toleration. Quote, All I shall add, unquote, says he in the close, quote, is to wish Protestants to see to it and not to be gulled by their enemies, not to misjudge their friends, and to be ever ready to do or to suffer, as God shall call them to do it, for their interests of so high moment. Pro Cristo et Patria Dulce Periculum. End quote. Footnote, the Marchmont Papers, Volume 3, page 98. End footnote. At length the time of Britain's deliverance drew near. James VII, having by his violent and infatuated policy to establish arbitrary power and popery in England, roused the indignation of the English people. William, Prince of Orange, to save the liberties of Britain, made preparations for invading it. Grizel's father shared in the councils of William, and along with his son Patrick and George Bailey, accompanied him in his enterprise when the fleet was ready to sail. As was natural, she and the rest of the family felt deeply interested in the success of this undertaking. At first they were afflicted with anxious and misgiving thoughts as to the issue, when William's whole fleet was scattered and driven back by a violent tempest. Having heard of this melancholy news, she herself... Her mother and her sister immediately came from Utrecht to Helvet's Lies to get what information they could. The place was so crowded by people from all quarters come for the same purpose that her mother, she and her sister, were forced to lie in the boats they came in, and for three days continually to see coming floating in beds, chests, horses, etc., that had been thrown overboard in their distress. At the end of the third day, the prince and some other ships came in, but no account of the ship their friends were in. Their despair was great, but in a few days was relieved by their coming in safe, but with the loss of all their baggage, which at that time was no small distress to them. When the fleet on the damage being made repaired set out again, the solicitude of Grizel, her mother, and the rest of the family for its success was more intense than ever. To hear of those embarked by having safely landed in England was greatest joy they could picture to their minds. Of this they had soon the satisfaction of hearing, but the joy with which such tidings in ordinary circumstances would have given them was swallowed up by the sorrow in which they were plunged by the unexpected loss of Grizel's sister Christian, who on the very day on which the welcome news reached them died suddenly of a sore throat caught from her exposure in the damp, open boat at Helvetslies. To Grizel, who was of strong and tender affections, the loss of the, dear, of the sister of her heart was a great affliction. 
When that happy news came, says Lady Murray, it was no more to my mother than any occurrence she had not the least concern in, for that very day her, her sister Christian died of a sore throat, which was so heavy an affliction to both her and her mother that they had no feeling for anything else. And, as Lady Murray, often have I heard her say she had no notion of any other cause of sorrow but the death and affliction of those she loved, and of that she was sensible to her last in the most tender manner. She had endured many hardships without being depressed by them. On the contrary, her spirits and activity increased the more she had occasion for them, but the death of her friends was always a load too heavy for her. Happily, the Prince of Orange's undertaking was crowned with success. In England, all parties rallied around him, a very merciful providence for Scotland, which, wasted by a persecution of twenty-eight years, was now lying under the iron wheel of despotism, crushed in spirit, and more hopeless of deliverance in so far as her own intrinsic power was concerned than at any previous period of her history. But England, in saving herself, saved Scotland. When matters were all settled in England, Grizel's brothers and sisters were sent home to Scotland under the care of a friend, while she herself and her mother came over with the Princess of Orange to London. The Princess, now about to ascend the British throne, attracted by the engaging character and peculiarly prepossessing personal appearance of Grizel, footnote, her personal appearance is thus described by her daughter, quote, she was middle-sized, well-made, clever in her person, very handsome, with a life and sweetness in her eyes very uncommon, and great delicacy in all her features. Her hair was chestnut, and to her last had the finest complexion with the clearest red in her cheeks and lips that could be seen in one of fifteen, which, added to her natural constitution, might be owing to the great moderation she had in her diet throughout her whole life. End quote. Lady Murray adds, Quote, pottage and milk was her, her, her greatest feast, and by choice she preferred them to everything, though nothing came wrong to her that others could eat. Water she preferred to any liquor, and though often obliged to take a glass of wine, she always did it unwillingly, thinking it hurt her and did not like it. End quote and end footnote. The princess, attracted by the character and personal appearance of Grizel, wished to retain her near her person as one of her maids of honor. But though this was a situation for which Grizel was well qualified, and to which many of her age would have been proud to have been elevated, she declined the appointment, preferring to go home with the rest of her family. The reader has already been informed of the youthful attachment which sprung up between her and George Bailey within the walls of his father's prison and also that Bailey was a refugee in Holland at the time when she and her father's family were resident in that country. In their exile, their affection for each other increased, and they had their marriage always in view, though from the circumstances in which they were then placed, neither of them having a shilling, they deemed it unwise to make known their intentions to their parents, and were at no small pains to conceal their mutual passion from them. In the midst of her parents' troubles, she had offers of marriage from two gentlemen of fortune and good character in her own neighborhood, in Scotland, who had done nothing to incur the resentment of the government, and her parents, thinking these to be favorable opportunities for her comfortable settlement in life, pressed her to marry one or other of these gentlemen. Quote, 
She earnestly rejected both, but without giving any reason for it, though her parents suspected it, and it was the only thing in which she ever displeased or disobeyed them. These gentlemen were intimate and sincere friends to Mr. Bailey and her to the day of their death, and often said to them both she had made a much better choice in him, for they made no secret of having made their addresses to her. Her parents were ever, ever fond of George Bailey, and he was always with them. So great an opinion had they of him that he was generally preferred to any other and trusted to go out with her and take care of her when she had any business to do. They had no objection but the circumstances he was in, which had no weight with her, for she always hoped things would turn out at last as they really did, and if they did not, she was resolved not to marry at all. End quote. Having after the revolution been put in possession of his father's estate, which had been gifted to the Duke of Gordon, Bailey made known to her parents the engagement between him and her, and they were married at Redbray's Castle on September 17, 1692. At that time her father, his political and personal troubles being now over, was in high favor with King William, and was enjoying in security that wealth and honor to which his sufferings in the cause of religion and liberty so well entitled him. Footnote On the new order of things introduced at the Revolution, he was nominated a member of the new Privy Council in Scotland, and in December 1690 was created a Scottish peer by the title of Lord Polworth. In 1692 he was appointed Principal Sheriff at Berwickshire, and in 1693 one of the four extraordinary Lords of Session. In 1696 he was made Lord Chancellor of Scotland, the highest office in that kingdom. In less than a year after he was created Earl of Marchmont, and in 1698 he was appointed Lord High Commissioner to represent the King's person in the session of Parliament which met at Edinburgh in July that year. It is interesting to know that, in prosperity, this gentleman did not forget those who had befriended him in adversity. Quote, there is a family tradition which relates that being obliged in consequence of political persecution to quit Redbray's house and cross the country, a little above Greenlaw, he met with a man of the name of Broomfield, the miller of Greenlaw Mill, who was requiring a slap or breach in the mill call. Sir Patrick, addressing him by the occupation in which he was engaged, said, Slap, have you any money? Upon which Broomfield supplied him with what was considered necessary for his present exigency. Sir Patrick, it is added, was obliged to pass over into Holland, but when he came back with King William, did not forget his former benefactor in need. It is not stated what return he made him, but the family was settled in a free house as long as they lived, and ever after retained the name of Slap. End quote. New Statistical Account of Scotland. End footnote. The fruits of Grizel's marriage with George Bailey were a son, Robert, born January 23, 1694, who died young, and two daughters, Grizel, who was married August 26, 1710, to Sir Alexander Murray of Stanhope, Bart, M.P., and died without issue June 6, 1759, aged 67. And Rachel, born February 23, 1696, married to Charles, Lord Binning, eldest son of Thomas, 6th Earl of Haddington, 
and mother of Thomas, 7th Earl of Haddington, George Bailey of Jerviswood, and other children. Footnote, Douglas of Peerage, Volume 2, page 81. End footnote. Lady Grisell's marriage with Mr. Bailey was unusually happy. She indeed proved to him, in the words of the poet, quote, a guardian angel o'er his life presiding, doubling his pleasures and his cares dividing. End quote. Equally ardent and tender was his affection toward her, in whom he found combined the qualities of the virtuous woman whom Solomon's mother so happily describes, and whose price is far above rubies. On her he left the sole charge of domestic affairs, and even in reference to matters of graver importance he placed great confidence in her judgment. None could better judge, says her daughter, than herself, what was most proper to be done on any occasion, of which my father was so convinced that I have good reason to believe he never did anything of consequence through his whole life without asking her advice. She had a quickness of apprehension and sagacity that generally hit upon the fittest things to be done. Her daughter adds, Though she had a quick and ready wit, yet she spoke little in company but where she was quite free and intimate. She used, to often, she used often to wonder at a talent she met with in many that could entertain their company with numberless words and yet say nothing. In 1703, Lady Bailey lost her dear mother, who died at Edinburgh October 11th that year. On her dying bed, her mother, who retained her judgment to the last, was surrounded by all her children. At this scene, Lady Bailey, in the agony of her grief, had hid herself behind the curtain of the bed so that her mother, looking round upon them all, did not see her, upon which she said, Where is Grisel? Lady Bailey immediately came near her mother, who, taking her by the hand, said, My dear Grisel, blessed be you above all, for a helpful child have you been to me. I've often heard my mother, says Lady Murray, tell this in floods of tears which she was always in when she spoke of her mother at all. Great was the sorrow of the Earl of Marchmont and of the whole family on the death of this excellent wife and mother. During life she had experienced great variety in her outward condition, but in every situation she was distinguished by un unpretending piety and unspotted virtue, united with great sweetness, composure, and equanimity of temper. So well disciplined had been her mind by adversity that when exalted to wealth and honor, none of her acquaintances from the highest to the lowest ever found that these had created any change in the temper of her mind. To her virtues and amiable qualities, her husband has borne a very affecting testimony in an inscription he wrote in her Bible, which he gave to his daughter, Lady Bailey, Quote, Grisel Lady Marchmont, her book, to Lady Grisel Hume, Lady Jerviswood, my beloved daughter. My heart, in remembrance of your mother, keep this Bible, which is what she ordinarily made use of. She had been happy of a religious and virtuous education by the care of virtuous and religious parents. She was of a middle stature, of a plump, full body a clear, ruddy complexion, a grave, majestic countenance, a composed, steady, and mild spirit, of a most firm and equal mind, never elevated by prosperity nor debased or daunted by adversity, 
She was a wonderful stay and support to me in our exile and trouble, and an humble and thankful partaker with me in our more prosperous condition, in both which, by the blessing of God, she helped much to keep the balance of our deportment even. She was constant and diligent in the practice of religion and virtue, a careful observer of worship to God, and of her duties to her husband, her children, her friends, her neighbors, her tenants, her servants, so that it may justly be said her piety, probity, virtue, and prudence were without a blot or stain and beyond reproach. As by the blessing of God she had lived well, so by his mercy in the time of her sickness and at her death there appeared many convincing evidences that the Lord took her to the enjoyment of endless happiness and bliss. She died October 11, 1703, at Edinburgh, and was buried in my burying place near the Cannon Gate Church, where I have caused mark out a grave for myself close by hers, upon the left side, in the middle of the ground. Marchmont. End quote. From her tender years, Lady Bailey had been a constant help and support to her father's family and even after she became the mother of a family herself, she was still useful to them in many respects. From the time that her brother Alexander, Lord Polworth, went abroad in 1716, in consequence of his appointment the year before to be envoy extraordinary to the courts of Denmark and Prussia, and all the time he was at Copenhagen and Cambrai, she had the whole management of his affairs and the care of the education of his children. It may also be mentioned as an evidence of the care she continued to take of her father that during the last years of his life, which he passed at Berwick-upon-Tweed, she went to Scotland every alternate year to see him, and the infirmities of old age unfitting him for taking the trouble of looking after his own affairs, she examined and settled his steward's accounts, which were often long and intricate. Quote, Very unlike too many married women... Unquote, says Joanna Bailey, quote, who, in taking upon them the duties of a wife and mother, suffered these to absorb every other, and visit their father's house seldom, and as a stranger who has nothing to do there but be served and waited upon. If misfortune or disease come upon their parents, it is the single daughters only who seem to be concerned in all this. She who is a neglectful daughter is an attentive wife and mother from a mean cause. End quote. Footnote. Metrical Legends of Exalted Characters, page 270. End footnote. When in London, Lady Bailey regularly wrote every other post to her father or to her sister, Lady Julian, who then lived with them and watched over his declining years with affectionate care, sent him the newspapers and any new book or pamphlet which she thought would interest him. Amid the infirmities of old age, the good man retained all the kindly cheerfulness of his earlier days, and this made his society delightful to the youngest of his descendants, the means both of improvement and of enjoyment. To join the useful with the agreeable in social intercourse, and indeed the whole business of life, was a principle upon which he seemed studiously to have acted, and hence the device which is constantly found in his books and manuscripts. Quote, Omne tulit punctum qui miscuit utili dulci. HDA. End quote. Footnote. The last three letters are a contraction for Horace's De Arte Poetica. Sometimes 
he writes the quotation more briefly thus, Omni Tulit Punctum, HDA. The Marchmont Papers. End footnote. Even on his deathbed he could not resist his old propensity to joking. Sitting by his bedside not many hours before he expired, Lord Binning observed him smiling and said, My lord, what are you laughing at? To which the dying earl answered, I am diverted to think what a disappointment the worms will meet with when they come to me expecting a good meal and finding nothing but bones. He was much emaciated in body, and indeed he had always been a thin, clever man. None of his family were then in Scotland except his daughter, Lady Julian, who attended him, and his son-in-law, Lord Binning, who no sooner heard from Lady Julian of her father's illness than he hastened to visit him and continued with him until his death. He expired without a groan and seemed to rejoice in the prospect of his departure. Lady Bailey had not the satisfaction of seeing him under his last illness. On hearing of his death, footnote, he died in 1724 in the 84th year of his age, end footnote. She was deeply affected, though, from his advanced age, it was an event which could hardly take her by surprise. She met with another domestic affliction which she deeply felt in the death of the amiable and accomplished Lord Binning. Footnote. Like Lady Bailey, Lord Binning possessed an elegant talent for songwriting. He was the author of pastoral ballads. His ballad beginning, Did Ever Swain a Nymph Adore, has long been well known. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 684. Ritson's Collection of Scottish Songs, Volume 1, page 73. End footnote. The husband of her daughter, Rachel, in 1733. Having fallen into ill health, he went to Italy for the benefit of the climate, and having lived at Naples for some time, he died there on January 30th that year, in the 36th year of his age, having borne his sufferings with the utmost patience, resignation, and even cheerfulness and good humor. To this nobleman she was as strongly attached as if he had been her own child, and she and her whole family accompanied him to Italy. They resided in Naples about sixteen months. On the death of Lord Binning, they went to Oxford for the education of his children. Footnote. He had committed and recommended to Mr. Bailey's care the education of his children and said he needed give no directions about it since he was to do it. What he wished most earnestly was to have them good and honest men which he knew would also be Mr. Bailey's chief care. Lady Murray's Narrative End footnote Thomas, after 7th Earl of Haddington, and his two brothers. For Lord Binning's children, Lady Bailey had a strong affection. She was not without ambition of their rising to distinction in the world, and omitted nothing she could devise to further them in this way. But yet, whenever she spoke about them, the great thing she expressed herself with most concern about was that they might become virtuous and religious men. Footnote. Lady Murray's Narrative. End footnote. While resident in Oxford, she met with a trial in the death of Mr. Bailey, which perhaps inflicted a heavier blow on her heart than any of the past afflictions of her life. He died there on Sabbath, August 6, 1738, after an illness of only only 48 hours in the 75th year of his age. He had lived an eminently pious and exemplary life, and his latter end was peace. 
During the whole time of his illness, he was employed in breathing out prayers to his God and Savior for his own salvation and that of his family. He departed with a calm, serene countenance and with scarce a groan. His body was sent home to be interred in his own burying place at Mellerstein, attended according to his own orders, which Lady Bailey was careful to have executed only by his near relations, near neighbors, and his own tenants. Under this bereavement it was difficult for her to bear up. From the peculiar tenderness of her feelings, she was always extremely susceptible to the emotions of sorrow and the loss of friends. But when in her old age she was bereft of the excellent companion to whom she had been so long united, whom she called the best of husbands and delight of my life for forty-eight years, and as to whom she often declared that they never had a shadow of a quarrel or misunderstanding, no, not for a moment, it is not surprising that she was almost overwhelmed by the stroke, and that hers was a sorrow which could not altogether be assuaged on this side of the grave. The account which Lady Murray gives of her mother's sorrow under this loss is very touching. Quote, when she lost him, her affliction was so great that it threw her into a dangerous fit of illness, which, with joy, she would have allowed herself to sink under had she not thought of her thought her life was still necessary for the happiness of her family. As Sir Alexander Murray then threatened by long letters writ to us to give us a great deal of trouble and disturbance which could not well take place unless he outlived her. She stayed near two years longer at Oxford as long as it was thought fit for her grandsons, though the most melancholy, disagreeable place she could be in, far from friends and no business to amuse or take off her thoughts from her heavy loss, so that the sedentary life she led, which she had never been used to, again threw her into a long and dangerous fit of illness in which her life was despaired of by everyone. End quote. And after stating that her mother and the whole family came in 1740 to London and thence immediately to Scotland, Lady Murray adds, quote, Everything at home so continually renewed her grief that scarce a day passed without her bursting out into tears. Though she did her utmost to command herself not to give us pain, yet it often overcame her. One day, looking round and admiring the beauties of the place, she checked herself, burst out in tears, and said, what is all this to me since your father does not see and enjoy it? Such reflections she often had and neither amusements nor business could put them out of her thoughts. As I almost always put her to bed, I can declare I never saw her lie down but with a deep groan and generally tears not soon to be pacified. Nor could she be persuaded to take another room, choosing everything that could put her in mind of him. She had some hundreds of his letters, he having been often at London, absent from her for many months at a time, and never missed writing one single post. She had carefully preserved them all and set about reading of them, which put her into such fits of grief and crying, quite sunk and destroyed her, that we thought it would kill her. She one day said she was ashamed to be alive after losing one that had writ her such letters, and with whom she could have been contented to live on the top of a mountain, on bread and water, and had no pleasure in anything but for his sake. Happy, said she, had it been for her, if she had constantly read over his letters and governed her whole actions by them. She intended sealing them up in a bag, and bade me see they were buried in the coffin with her. 
I begged to read some of them which she allowed me, and I earnestly entreated they might not be buried, but preserved for the sake of his posterity, and they are now in my custody. In nothing I ever saw did I find so much to instruct, to admire, to please. They are a true picture of his heart, full of the most tender and condescending affection, just remarks and reflections, true goodness, submission to providence, entire resignation and contentment without cant, superstition, severity, or uncharitableness to others, constant justness to all, and frugality in his private affairs for the sake of his family. End quote. In September 1744, it being thought proper that her grandson should go to London, she resolved that she herself and her whole family should go with them, her object being, as they were just entering into the world, to watch over them and aid them by her counsel and experience, though she owned it to be her desire, as was most natural, to end her days in quiet. At the same time, she felt persuaded that she should not return and desired her children in the event of her dying there to bring home her body to be buried beside that of her husband. Quote, the rebellion of 1745 was a great affliction to her. She dis the distress of her country and friends went near her heart and made great impression on her health and spirits. Nobody could be more sensibly touched with the desolation of this poor country yet she never expressed herself with bitterness nor resentment against the authors of it and could not bear to hear others do so. She said it was the judgment of God upon us and too well deserved by all ranks. Therefore we ought to submit to it and endeavor to avert it by other means than railing and ill will at those who were the instruments of it. End quote. Her religion was eminently free from a censorious and uncharitable spirit toward others. Lady Murray, after stating that her mother was much devoted to piety and the service of God, adds, People who exercise themselves much in this way are often observed to con contract a morose way of thinking concerning others, which she had no tincture of. Her religion improved her in charity and patience for others, other people's failings and forgiveness of injuries, and no doubt was one great source of that constant cheerfulness she was so remarkable for. End quote. While in London, she seldom went abroad except to visit Lady Stanhope, but in her own children and grandchildren she enjoyed the most agreeable society at home, and she also found much pleasure in the frequent visits paid to her by her old friends and acquaintances as well as by several new ones who thought no time better spent than in her company. At last the time drew near when she must go the way of all the earth. An epidemical cold being prevalent in the English capital, she caught the disease which, after hanging about her for some time, terminated fatally. She was, however, confined to her bed only a few days, and there was no aberration of mind to the last. Two days before her death, her family being all in the room beside her, she said, My dears, read the last chapter of the proverb. You know what it is. To have her grandsons happily married, says Lady Murray, lay near her heart, and I imagine it was with regard to that that she said it. I think it is a very strong picture of herself, and if ever any deserve to have it said of them, she does. Some may imagine that thoughts respecting the happy marriage of her grandsons would scarcely exercise appropriate for a deathbed. 
but this would be to take a very imperfect and contracted view of the Christian exercise appropriate in such circumstances. No doubt the greatest questions to every man and woman when about to enter eternity appear at God's judgment seat are, Am I at peace with God? Have I obtained that renewed heart which is indispensable to admission into heaven? Am I trusting not to my own good works or virtues, but exclusively to the divine righteousness of Christ, an interest in which he, in which is equally indispensable to admission into heaven? For while all true Christians will, in the prospect of death, give their chief thoughts to these subjects, they may, at the same time, in perfect consistency with this, feel an interest in whatever contributes to the well-being both temporal and eternal, of their friends whom they are to leave behind them in the world. And to this a happy marriage relation, which is greatly conducive to the promotion of both virtue and piety, unquestionably contributes. The next day Lady Bailey called for Lady Murray, to whom she gave directions about some few things, and expressed it as her desire to be carried home and interred beside her dear husband but said that perhaps it might be too much trouble and inconvenience to them at that season. She therefore left it to Lady Murray to do as she pleased. But, says she, in a black purse in my cabinet you will find money sufficient to do it. This money she had kept by her for that purpose, that whenever her death took place her children might be able, without being straightened, to carry her mortal remains to Scotland to be deposited in the same resting place with those of her husband. Having said this, she added, I have now no more to say or do. Tenderly embraced Lady Murray and laid down her head upon the pillow after which she spoke little. True Christians of strong and warm affections have often anticipated with delight the recognition of their beloved pious friends and relatives in heaven, expecting to derive from this source no small portion of their future felicity. Lady Bailey always expressed her assurance that she and Mr. Bailey, who had so long lived together on earth as heirs of the grace of life, would meet together and know one another in a better world. And she often said, after his death, that without that belief she could not have supported herself. This reflection was cheering to her even when dying. Now, my dear, said she to Lady Murray, I can die in peace and desire nothing but to be where your father is. She died on December 6, 1746, surrounded by her whole family who showed a lively sense of what they lost when she breathed her last. According to her desire, her body was conveyed from London to Scotland and on Christmas Day, December 25th, which was her birthday, was laid by the side of her husband in the monument of Mellerstein. She was buried in the same manner in which, according to his own orders, she herself had directed his funeral, near relations, near neighbors, and her own tenants only being present. Lady Bailey had been universally respected while living, and she died universally lamented. In her death, many lost not only a friend but a benefactor, for she was very charitable to the distressed, remembering what she herself had suffered, nor was her beneficence confined to those of her own way of thinking. Footnote. The very last week of her life she sent a servant to Newgate to inquire after one she heard was there in distress, and to give him some relief, though she had never seen him but knew his friends. Lady Murray's Narrative. End footnote.
The esteem in which she was held was testified by the many letters of condolence which on the event her family received from all quarters. Lord Cornbury, waiting, writing to Lady Hervey on her death, says, Indeed, I am sorry that we shall see our good friend no more. I am sorry that we shall partake no more in the society of that hospitality, that benevolence, that good humor, that good sense, that cheerful dignity, the result of so many virtues which were so amiable in her, and what did so much honor to humanity. I am very sorry for what those must suffer at present whom she had bred up to have affections and who had so justly so much for her. Lady Bailey, in truth, possessed a combination of qualities not often to be met with in the same person and which would have adorned the most exalted station. It appears to me, says Joanna Bailey, quote, that a more perfect female character could scarcely be imagined for while she is daily exercised in all that is useful, enlivening, and endearing, her wisdom and courage on every extraordinary and difficult occasion gave a full assurance to the mind that the devoted daughter of Sir Patrick Hume and the tender helpmate of Bailey would have made a most able and magnanimous queen. End quote. Footnote. Metrical Legends of Exalted Characters, Preface, page 26. End footnote. The inscription engraven upon marble upon her monument, which was written by one who knew her well, Sir Thomas Burnett, one of the judges of the Court of Common Pleas and the youngest son of Bishop Burnett, summarily records the leading and most singular events of her life and gives a full, comprehensive, and withal a just view of her character. This inscription, with which we shall conclude our sketch, is as follows. Quote, Here lieth the right honourable Lady Grizel Bailey, wife of George Bailey of Jerviswood, Esquire, eldest daughter of the right honourable Patrick, Earl of Marchmont, a pattern to her sex and an honour to her country. She excelled in the character of a daughter, a wife, a mother, while an infant. At the hazard of her own, she preserved her father's life who, under the rigorous persecution of arbitrary power, sought refuge in the close confinement of a tomb, where he was nightly supplied with necessities conveyed by her with a caution far above her years, a courage almost above her sex, a real instance of the so much celebrated Roman charity. She was a shining example of conjugal affection that knew no dissension, felt no decline during almost a fifty years' union, the dissolution of which she survived from duty, not choice. Her conduct as a parent was amiable, exemplary, successful, to a degree not well to be expressed, without mixing the praises of the dead with those of the living, who desire that all praise but of her should be silent. At different times she managed the affairs of her father, her husband, her family, her relations, with unwearied application, with happy economy, as distant from avarice as from prodigality, Christian piety, love of her country, zeal for her friends, compassion for her enemies, cheerfulness of spirit, pleasantness of conversation, dignity of mind, good breeding, good humor, good sense, were the daily ornaments of a useful life. Protracted by providence to an uncommon length, 
for the benefit of all who fell within the sphere of her benevolence. Full of years and of good works, she died on the sixth day of December, 1746, near the end of her 81st year, and was buried on her birthday, the 25th of that month. Lady Catherine Hamilton, Duchess of Athol Among the devout and honorable women, not a few, in our country, who in former times adorned a high station by their exalted piety and their zeal for God, the subject of the present notice is entitled to a prominent place. It is chiefly from her diary, Footnote, her diary is printed in the Christian magazine for 1813, to which it was communicated by the late Reverend Mr. Moncrief, minister of the Secession Church in Hamilton. End footnote. That we derive the information we possess concerning her, and it is mostly a record of her Christian exercise and experience, so that few incidents in her history are known. Her life indeed appears to have been of a regular and little varying tenor, hardly connected with any of those signal events and conjunctures which give to biography much of its attraction, and a sketch of it does not therefore admit of a varied and striking narrative, but it may notwithstanding be interesting and instructive to the serious reader to peruse a few illustrations of her eminently devout and Christian character. To those ladies who have already engaged our attention, she was similar in spirit and in sentiments and she could look back to many of her ancestors on whom God had conferred the highest of all nobility, the titles of which are not written in old, rotten, or molded parchments, but are more ancient than the heavens. She commenced her diary about the year 1688, in the 25th year of her age, and continued it down to the period of her death. From the commencement it displays remarkably sound views of evangelical truth, and much maturity of religious experience, and throughout it breathes a spirit of singularly amiable and fervently pious. As many parts of it are very much alike, instead of giving it entire, it will be sufficient to select a few passages as a representation of the general character of the whole. Catherine Hamilton was the second daughter of William, third Duke of Hamilton, and Anne, Duchess of Hamilton, of whom a notice has already been given. She was born at Hamilton Palace in 1662, and in 1683 was married to John Lord Murray, eldest son of the first Marquis of Athol, afterward first Duke of Athol, in the 21st year of her age. She enjoyed the great blessing of an eminently pious mother, who anxiously endeavored to imbue her young mind with divine truth and the fear of God. Under this religious training she greatly profited, and she appears to have been from her earliest years of a serious and contemplative turn of mind. At an early period she had acquired an extensive acquaintance with the scriptures and an accurate knowledge of the distinguishing truths of the gospel. Nor did this knowledge merely float in the head, it deeply impressed her heart, resulting in early proofs of her genuine piety. Near the beginning of her diary there is the following entry. Quote, O my soul, remember Friday the 18th of November, 1681, and Thursday the 24th, wherein the Lord thy God was pleased to give thee sweetest consolation in himself, 
and some assurance of his reconciled countenance at Hamilton. End quote. This was in the nineteenth year of her age, two years previous to her marriage. But her husband, in a note on this passage, states that he had heard her say that she had given herself up to God some years before the time referred to. Thus, ere she had reached womanhood, she had surrendered herself to God, and the whole of her subsequent life evinced the entireness and the sincerity with which the surrender had been made. Christ she then chose as her Savior, God as her portion, the divine glory as her chief end, the divine law as her infallible guide, and from her God and Savior she sought and found grace and strength to proceed in the Christian course. It is indeed interesting to see a young lady in exalted station thus escaping the, the fascinations of worldly pleasure and gaiety with which the young are so apt to be entangled and making the concerns of the soul and of eternity which the young are so prone to defer to a future season the chief object of her attention. Quote, Lady that in the prime of earliest youth wisely has shunned the broad way and the green, and with those few art eminently seen that labor up the hill of heavenly truth, the better part with Mary and with Ruth, chosen thou hast. End, qu end quote. Footnote. Milton. End footnote. In her diary, the allusions to the period of the persecution are few and only casual, but they plainly indicate her detestation of the ferocious intolerance of that period and her sympathy with those good men who, for standing up in defense of their religious rights and liberties, were banished to foreign climes or pined in dungeons, or whose blood was shed on scaffolds. Speaking of the forfeiture of the estate of the Earl of Argyll, which took place in the close of the year 1681, and of the Marquis of Athol, who raised and headed some of the troops which were afterward led against the Earl, having accepted and retained some of his forfeited lands, she said, quote, I was always convinced that it was a most unjust forfeiture, that of the late Earl of Argyle, and so was grieved that my husband's father should have any part of it given to him. End quote. At the same time, she records with much satisfaction that her husband had no hand in the oppression of, Ar of the Argyle family and would never consent to share in the spoils. My husband, says she, quote, had no part in it the forfeited estate, and did at the same time disapprove of his father's meddling with it and would never, though he pressed him to it, take anything of it. End quote. After the persecution had closed, she took a deep interest in the prosperity of the Presbyterian Church, and knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, she was particularly concerned that the parishes of Scotland should be supplied with devoted evangelical ministers. Lay patronage having been abolished at the Revolution, her husband had not the power of presenting ministers to vacant parishes, but as the heritors of each parish, being Protestants, and the elders were to propose a suitable person to the congregation to be either approved or dis disapproved by them. Footnote. The reasons of the congregation, if they disapproved of the person proposed, were to be laid before the presbytery, which was, the, which was to judge of them. End footnote. 
comparators and elders, it is obvious, had great influence in the settlement of ministers, and she was extremely desirous that her husband should use this influence in procuring the settlement of pious and able gospel ministers. To prevail on him to do this, her prayers and counsel were not wanting, and by the blessing of God they had the desired effect. Writing at Falkland, May 9, 1691, in reference to the settlement of a minister in that place, she says, quote, O Lord, help me always to remember thy goodness to me. Thou hast many times prevented me with, my, with thy mercies and disappointed my fears, and now again lately I have had another proof of it. Thou only knowest what a burden it was to me, the fear I was in that my husband should have obstructed a good minister being settled in this place. And now glory to God that has given me to see him the main, nay, I may say the only instrument of bringing a godly minister, the Reverend Mr. John Forrest, to this place. O Lord, grant he may in the first place reap the benefit of his ministry to himself and bless it in a special manner to him that he, finding the good of it, may yet be more instrumental in bringing good ministers to the places he has interest in. End quote. Falkland at that time was a very irreligious and profane place. During the persecution, though there were in it a few intelligent and pious persons who refused to conform to prelacy and to whom Mr. John Wellwood and other proscribed ministers frequently preached privately in some of their houses, yet the great body of the population had no scruples in conforming to prelacy, so that when the curate of the parish dispensed the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, a great multitude assembled, and he could boast what many of his brethren could not do of the large number on his communicants' roll. Footnote. Diary of Jean Collis, Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 31, Number 7. End footnote. In this place where Satan had his seat in much peace, where ignorance and profanity so greatly abounded, it could not be expected that the people would set much value on the gospel, or that they would feel anything like a general desire for the settlement of an evangelical and devoted minister among them. It was therefore a very merciful providence that others who better understood and appreciated the worth of an efficient gospel ministry successfully exerted themselves in procuring for them this great blessing. At this time the subject of our notice was residing at Falkland Palace, which was a favorite retreat of James VI, probably on account of his attachment to hunting, for which the adjacent forest afforded excellent opportunities, but which after his accession to the crown of England ceased to be a royal residence, though it was visited by Charles I and II. In 1658 it fell into the hands of the Athol family. From the entries in her diary, Lady Murray appears residing there from January 1689 till May 1691. During this period, her husband was threatened with a consumption, and his health continued for more than a year in a very precarious state. This caused her deep anxiety, and her reflections in regard to his condition evinced the struggle she felt between natural affection and submission to the will of God. Writing at Kupar, Sabbath, May 17, 1691, after adverting to his illness, she adds, Thou knowest that I have this day promised, if thou wilt be pleased to spare and recover him, to endeavor through thy strength to live more watchfully and holily. But, ah, Lord, how unable am I for anything that is good, 
if thou assist me not. True is thy word which thou hast said, Holy Jesus, that without thee we can do nothing. John 15.5 But I shall be able to do all things, even the hardest, if thou assist. Therefore this day with all my soul I beg of thee that thou wilt give me entire submission to thy holy will and pleasure, whatever it shall be, that even if thou shouldest see fit to take away the desire of mine eyes, I may lay my hand on my mouth and be silent, since it is thy doing who canst do nothing wrong. And be with me in the midst of my troubles, and support me under them, as thou hast been graciously pleased to do this time and heretofore, or which I desire from the bottom of my soul to bless and magnify thy name, who canst abundantly make up the loss of all earthly comforts. Be thou then in place of all to me, blessed Jesus, and let never any idol be in my heart when thou oughtest to be in the chief room. But thou hast not only allowed of a lawful love to my husband, but commanded me to have it. Therefore it is lawful and my duty to pray for him. Spare him, O Lord, for Christ's sake, and bless him with long life in this world, that he may glorify thee in his generation, and be an instrument of doing good to the people among whom thou hast set him, and be a blessing to his family. O God, hear me, and grant unto me for Christ's sake, O grant that the shaking of this rod over my head may be a mean to bring me back to my duty, which it will be if thou grant thy blessing with it, which I beg for thy son's sake, and for whose sake alone I desire to be heard. End quote. She afterward records her gratitude to God for her husband's recovery to health. Having resolved in the summer of 1697 to go to Hamilton to visit her mother and to enjoy the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which was to be celebrated there on the 19th of July, she spent the Sabbath preceding at Edinburgh where her husband, now Earl of Tullibardine, then was. Footnote, he was created Earl of Tullibardine, Viscount Glen Almond, and Lord Murray for life, July 27, 1696. End footnote. She was careful at all times to sanctify the Lord's Day, but this being the Sabbath preceding that on which she pr- pr- proposed to commemorate the Lord's death in the sacrament of the supper, She endeavored in a particular manner by meditation and prayer to have her mind brought into a suitable frame for the solemn service which she had in prospect. Quote, Edinburgh, Sunday, July 12, 1697. O my soul, bless God the Lord that ever he put it into thy heart to seek him, for he hath promised that those that seek him shall find him. This day I was reading the 16th chapter of John, verses 23 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you, etc. O gracious promises! Then I began to think what it was I would ask of God. The thought that immediately occurred to me was, Jesus Christ to dwell in my heart by faith and love. The thought that if God would put it in my offer to have all the universe with all the glory, honor, riches, and splendor of it, I would rather have Christ to be my king, priest, and prophet than have it all. Oh, that he would always rule in me and conquer all his and my enemies, my corruptions, temptations, and sins, I mean, and always assist and strengthen me to serve him faithfully and uprightly. Now, blessed Jesus, thou who hast said, Whatsoever we ask in thy name, the Father will give it. 
This is my petition and my request. Fulfill thy word to me. Thou art faithful that has promised. Therefore I desire to believe and trust that thou wilt perform. O never forsake me, nor leave me to myself. Lord, I do believe and hope that thou wilt, through the riches of free grace and thy meritorious satisfaction, redeem and save me from eternal death and damnation. But I beg not only so, but to be redeemed from the power of sin, corruption, and vain imaginations. Oh, they are strong and stirring. Oh, wilt thou not subdue them? Lord, I desire to obey thee and to be of good cheer, and believe that as thou hast overcome the world, so thou wilt overcome my sins in thy own due and appointed time. And now, Lord, thou knowest I am designing, if thou shalt permit, to partake of thy holy supper. O prepare me for it, and let me not be an unworthy receiver. Do thou there meet with my soul, and renew thy covenant and faithfulness unto me, and enlarge my heart and soul, and give me supplies of grace and strength to serve thee. O I have often played the harlot, and gone astray with many lovers. Jeremiah 3, 1 Yet thou sayest, Return again unto me, and often, as in this chapter, invitest me to return. O Lord, I come unto thee, for thou art the Lord, my covenanted God. Thou knowest that this day I know not of any fraud or guile in this declaration. If there be, Lord, search me and try me and discover it unto me and take it away and cleanse me from all mine iniquities. O let this be my mercy this day. End quote. By the observance of the Lord's Supper at this time, she was much refreshed and comforted. On the Wednesday after, she solemnly calls upon her soul not to forget to render to God thanksgiving and praise for having dealt so bountifully and mercifully with her. Quote, Thou hast been pleased, unquote, she says, quote, to give me at this time what thou wast graciously pleased to do. The last two times I communicated, namely a promise in scripture which thou madest me formerly believe in and rest quietly upon, which was the sixteenth verse of the fifteenth chapter of John. I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. A little before going to thy table, thou knowest what darkness and confusedness I had. Though still, blessed be thy holy name, there remained the hope and confidence of thy being reconciled to me through the blood of the Lamb, represented to me at thy table, as shed for my sins. But thou wast most graciously pleased before I went to thy table to make me go there with solid peace and satisfaction, firmly believing that thou callest me, and that I had a right to go there. Also, when I was at thy table, it was said by thy minister, I doubt not by thy guiding and directing spirit. What is your request and what is your petition? Then it occurred again unto me what I had done before when reading the 23rd and 24th verses of the 16th of John to entreat Jesus Christ to dwell in my heart by faith and never to leave me nor forsake me. And there at the Lord's table I did, thou knowest, O Lord, with the sincerity of my soul, accept of the Lord as my covenanted God and did most earnestly entreat the assistance of thy Holy Spirit and strength to be with me forever, that I may never go out of thy way, but be helped to live uprightly and holily all the days of my appointed time. End quote. 
Hamilton was a place endeared to her by many sacred as well as tender recollections. Not only was it her birthplace, the dwelling place of her infancy, and her parental residence, but God there first visited her soul in mercy, an event the most important in her history when viewed in the light of eternity. In afterlife she looked back to this period with feelings of the deepest gratitude to God, and Hamilton was to her ever after a consecrated spot. Quote, this was the place, unquote, says she, after recording her experience of the goodness of God to her on that sacramental occasion, quote, where thou first lookst upon me in mercy and saidst unto me when I was in my blood, live, about sixteen or seventeen years ago. But, oh, she adds, I have been often a transgressor and revolter since. But thou wast faithful, and didst not break thy covenant with me, nor alter the thing that had gone out of thy mouth. Psalm 89:34. But rather performs thy promise, verses 31 and 32, that if I should break thy statutes and keep not thy covenant, thou wouldest visit my transgressions with the rod, and mine iniquity with stripes, but thy loving kindness thou wouldest never take away from me, nor suffer thy faithfulness to fail. Blessed be thy holy name, thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever, on which I rest. Amen. Amen. End quote. In the beginning of September 1697, she and her husband left Edinburgh for London. On Sabbath, September 5th, they rested at Alnwick, the seat of the Duke of Northumberland, and on Saturday, the 18th of that month, they arrived at Kensington, where they remained the greater part of a year. During the time of her residence at Kensington, though, from her living at court, her obstacles to retirement and meditation were increased. There is ample evidence from her diary that much of her time was spent in reading the scriptures, in spiritual meditation, in self-examination, and in prayer. At the commencement of a new year, it was her practice in a particular manner to review her past life, to take an account of the manner in which she had spent the year that was gone, never to be recalled, to mark the rapidity with which she was advancing in the journey of life, and to embrace God anew as her God for time and for eternity. On the first day of the year 1698, when in the 36th year of her age, she thus writes, quote, I have this day renewed again my covenant with my God, though in great weakness yet I hope in sincerity. I have given up myself, soul and body, to be at his disposal as he sees meet. Oh, that he would be pleased to give me new strength to serve him in newness of life this year, and that as days are added to my natural life, so grace may be added to my spiritual. Oh, that with the old year which will never return again, I may have left off my old sinful crooked and worldly ways and never return to them again. Lord, thou who searchest the heart and triest the reins, knowest that this is more the desire of my soul than all gold or silver or honors or pleasures upon this earth. Therefore, O oh, deny me not the earnest request of my soul this day, and fulfill that scripture thou broughtest to my mind this morning in prayer. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13:5. End quote. On the first day of a subsequent year, 1699, which was Sabbath, she she thus writes at Hunting Tower, quote, 
This day I have been reflecting how I have spent the last year, and alas, I find great cause to mourn, for I have been very earthly-minded and carnal, and with Martha cumbered about many things, and have much neglected the one thing needful. Lord, pardon me for Jesus Christ's sake. I desire to be re- to, to repent and be humble. Oh, that thou mayest help me spend this year better, if thou sparest me. But I find all my resolutions ineffectual unless thou assist me. But if thou wilt look to, to thy helping hand and give me the lively influences of thy Holy Spirit, duties will not only be easy but pleasant to me. I have been endeavoring, though alas, in much deadness and weakness, to renew my covenant with thee. And this day I desire to confirm all that I have ever done before, to resign myself and all that is mine to thee. Holy Lord, accept of me, and give me sincerity and truth, and say thou that thou acceptest of me. End quote. Hunting Tower, formerly called Ruthland Castle, at which these reflections were written, was another place where she and her husband sometimes resided. This castle, which is in the parish of Tibermere, is a very ancient building, though it does not appear ever to have been a place of great strength. It was formerly the seat of the Gowrie family, and the place where James the Sixth was sometime confined by the Earl of Gowrie and others, in the enterprise usually called the Raid of Ruthven. But the castle with the adjoining barony became the property of the Athol family by a marriage with the Tullibarden family, who had received it from James the Sixth. After the Earl of Gowrie had lost it, in consequence of his conspiracy, it is now the seat of a calico printing establishment. To the spiritual welfare of her children, Lady Tullibarden's pious emotions, wishes, and prayers were, in an especial manner, directed. When in May 1698 the Earl went to Oxford with their eldest son John, purposing to leave him there at school, should it be found a suitable place for carrying on his education, she records her earnest desire not only that her son might be accomplished in every kind of secular learning, but that as God had distinguished him by a high birth in this world, he would also confer upon him the higher distinction of being holy in character and a promoter of true godliness. Quote, I could not remember, unquote, she adds, quote, that I had dedicated him in the womb so much to God as I had done the rest, but this day, Sabbath, May 22nd, I have resigned him and all the rest of my children wholly to be the Lord's. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, 
by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.